connect with people. They, they get to know me. You know, I have my Bible open, my computer open. I get commentaries. I get, you know, I'll, t- I'll pull tables together. And people will go, oh, either he's really just a great student of, of the Bible uh, or he's a pastor. So you get people coming up and asking me questions. So, so hey, what, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? Or how about this? Or, and so I get some really great conversations, and I love it. Some of the questions, uh, as I get into it with people, come around, of course, about the person of Jesus Christ. And I get some really interesting observations, opinions, thoughts about who Jesus is. And hopefully if you're somewhere along in your journey with, with Jesus Christ, you have also had conversations or you've had observations of how people approach the person of Jesus Christ. Here's your little participatory option. And this is where you shout out using your outside voices, not your church voices. What, what are the world's view or friend's view of who Jesus Christ is? If you say, tell me about Jesus. What might some of your friends say about that person? He's a teacher. Good. What else? He's a prophet. Uh-huh. Son of God. He's a hippie. Yeah. Irrelevant. What else? What? Bothersome. Anyone else? What's that? Yeah, a good moral man. He had his stuff right. What else? Anything? Yeah, just a regular Joe on the street. Maybe a little ahead when it comes to morality. Anything else? What's that? Mythical. Yeah. It's very true. Anyone else? Well, this morning we're going to walk through uh, Mark chapter 12. And I want to encourage you to grab uh, a Bible along the side. If, if you don't have one, there's uh, some spare ones in the back. Just wave if you want somebody to pass one down or wave if uh, you need one. And we, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, where Jesus uh, really makes his first very public announcement as to who he is. And we're going to start at verse 30, uh, 35 and go through verse 40. Uh, page 849 in the Bibles, if you got one that uh, we provided, 849, Mark chapter 12. And Jesus, just listen to, um, it may take a little bit of a listening ear to hear what he's saying, because he's a good Jewish teacher. Katie said that people think that he's a teacher, and it's true, he was called rabbi, teacher, master, um, but listen to what he's saying. You've got to kind of read in between the lines, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit more. Starting at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Anybody else kind of going, what? Jesus, you're talking in circles right here. Let's keep on going. 
And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at, at feasts and who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive great condemnation. So this morning we've got to unpack a little bit because Jesus is making an announcement this morning. He's making an announcement about who he is, his character, his person. Who is this Christ? Who is this, this Jesus that the, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the, the Sadducees, the scribes have all been coming and the people in mass quantities have been chasing after? Who is this Jesus? And Jesus finally has an opportunity to say, this is who I am. And in a way, it's kind of a veiled announcement. And, but the Jewish people go, oh, I get it. I get who you say you are. See, for the past little bit, Jesus had been drilled by the religious parties of the day. He had been, he'd been asked this, tried to, they tried to trap him with a political question about, listen, um, who, who do we pay? Do we pay these taxes? And Jesus says, give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And to the Lord, what is the Lord's? Give to Caesar. Pay Caesar his. But give to the Lord what is the Lord's. And Jesus is saying, listen, give him, give him his, his denarii. Pay him, what, pay those taxes. But the Lord wants everything. I, I'm your creator. I'm your master. I'm your Lord. Give it all to me. So Jesus escapes that little political question. Then he goes on. There's a theological question that the Sadducees say, listen, what about the resurrection? What if this man marries this woman and he dies? She marries the brother and he dies. He marries this brother and he dies. It's kind of one of these Jerry Springer shows where this woman keeps marrying the brothers. Kind of freaky, kind of trailer parky-ish. But, you know, Jesus says, well, listen, let me talk to you about marriage. And let me talk to you about the I'll answer your question from the very books that you ascribe to, the books of Moses. And so from Exodus, he says, listen, here's my answer. And the Sadducees, silence. After that, there was a religious question regarding um, what is the greatest commandment? And they're hoping that they can accuse him of being a heretic. But Jesus says, listen, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is exactly like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. And that guy goes, busted. You answered it exactly right. And Jesus said, listen, you're thinking rightly. And you're near to the kingdom of heaven. You're not quite there. You're near. You're close. You've almost got it. So you can be one step from the kingdom of God, one step from heaven, but still be outside. And that for many of us is true. Man, we, we have right thinking. We have morality. And Jesus says, listen, you're near. You're close, but you're missing it. You're missing the grandeur of who I am, what I've done, who I am as God. Give your life to that. And then it comes to verse 34. And when Jesus saw that, he answered, 
uh, answered wisely. Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And after that, no one dared to ask any more questions. It's like they're, they're looking around going, all right, who's next? Because he shut us all up. These are, these are the top scholars. He was in Jerusalem. This was the Mecca. The, for the Dutch folks, it's like the Grand Rapids. You know, all the seminary professors were sitting around going, okay, we can nail him here, we can nail him here. You ask that question, you ask that question. We got it. The, le- the liberals, the, the conservatives, everybody was getting together and they were going to nail Jesus. And they're all going, all right, we tried our best. No one dared to ask him another question. So Jesus sits back and goes, it's my opportunity to ask you a question. And they're good questions. As Jesus was sitting back, he is now the one going on on the attack. It was his turn to say, listen, my scribes, all you religious people. So he's really kind of speaking to us, the religious folks. He said, listen, I, I've got something for you. And it's a great question that you really have got to understand. And we've got to understand a little bit about who these scribes were. These scribes in the time of Jesus, um, the average Joe would be wearing some bright, colorful uh, clothes when they go out in the marketplace and the working. They'd be wearing normal clothes. But the scribes of the day wore perfectly white linen clothes. And there was a, a beautiful white a hem on their on the bottom of their clothes that had amazing, just beautiful, intricate fringe on it. They often wore a shawl that was just blue and white. And it just, as they would walk through the marketplace, it was like this glowing body walking. And so they'd walk through the marketplace. And there was even a, 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 a kind of an expectation that when a rabbi would walk through, no matter what you would do, you would greet this person with great deference and, ah, rabbi, master, father. And you'd greet them in such an appropriate way, honoring them. And these rabbis loved it. These scribes were like, that's right. Oh. The only people that were exempt were if you were busy in your trade. If you were knocking away at some metal or you're doing something, you did not have to stop what you were doing. But everybody else, you'd walk through the marketplace, you got attention. They were even considered very appropriate table ornaments. One, one uh, theologian called them table ornaments. That if you were throwing a feast, an appropriate person to invite would be a scribe. And he would have a place of honor on his right or on the left. Even when you would go to synagogue, the place of teaching. Where would the scribe sit? At the very front, facing the congregation, wearing his white leaning up against the chest that held the Torah. He got the sweet spot. He was the religious person. And Jesus said, listen, I've got a question for you. The Bible people. The people who claim to know everything about Scripture. You've got your, your way of doing church, doing religious life. You've got your kind of tunnel vision about how life should be done in the kingdom of God. Let me address that. I want to address you. And so Jesus asked this very good question. And he takes them totally by surprise. 
as he, he deals with it. He says to them a simple question that probably got their, their, them warm and fuzzy because they started thinking about it. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? How can you say, you scribes, you guys say that the Christ is the Son of God? And immediately, they started going back to their Old Testament scriptures that they've been so trained in. You know, maybe they had these apologetic classes as scribes, and all of a sudden they're going, oh, what about this? Remember what David said? Remember what Moses said? Remember what he said? Remember, oh, oh, how can we say? Let me tell you how I can say it. Because immediately they would have gone back to probably 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, God said to David this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offering, offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So immediately in their mind, they're thinking, oh, from David, from David will come this great king. God has promised a great king will come from David and he will establish a kingdom that will knock out the Romans where Israel will have their place, their place of prominence in society and in the world. They'll be the jewel again. The apple of God's eye, they will have the sweet spot for the whole world to see them. So their hearts were just warmed up about this idea of this Messiah, this Christ who would come and redeem them and put them back into the spotlight. Kind of sounds like the church again. Have you ever heard people today saying, man, the church has got to take its place again in society. We've got to have our place again, you know. Talk about cleaning up media, talk about cleaning up Washington, talk about cleaning up this. The church has got to get back in its spot. Kind of sounds like the religious folks, doesn't it? And there's other allusions to it all throughout. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in in Jeremiah, where God says these same things, sending up these promises of, listen, from David, a great one will come where I will establish his kingdom where he will rule with justice and righteousness. So that's saying what kind of king is going to be coming. And they were expecting this warrior deliverer kind of king. This this great king who was supposed to be coming. And they had no thought whatsoever of the supernatural. They were thinking only he would be the great, 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 great grandson of King David. And Jesus is saying, oh, but there's so much more to who that Messiah is to be. Not only is he from that line of David, not only is he a great, 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 great grandson, there's something more to him. So Jesus throws in Scripture something that they're very well-versed in, he opens up and says, let's talk about Psalm 110 right now. Let's open up Psalm 110. And, and David himself said this. It wasn't just David speaking, you know, glibly. He said this, and it says here in verse 36, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, 
in the Holy Spirit declared. So it wasn't just David's thoughts, opinions, his political ramblings. This was a God-inspired moment that David is speaking, saying, Listen, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Basically, in other words, he's saying, Listen, friends, this is an inspired text. Listen to Psalm 110, when David says, the Lord, Jehovah, this is like the the holy name of God, Jehovah said to my Lord, in other words, the, the Christ, the Lord God said to the Christ, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I've got everything established. And immediately he throws in the punchline. He, he says, uh, so David calls himself Lord in this. So as if God is speaking to David, listen, I'll get everything straight. Sit at my right hand, child of God, until I take care of your enemies. But there's also this, this other prophetic message that is coming out. And this is where you pull out, uh, Todd Pavin will laugh at me. When you're talking about prophecy, there's two different uh, horizons that you look at. you got the immediate, the right now. And you're looking at this saying, man, this is speaking to me. But prophetically, beyond, there's also another message. There's another story that, that goes beyond and says, listen, yes, it talks about now. But there's also something grander, something bigger, a message for even today's church. Listen, God is saying, God the Father is saying, my son, the Christ, you wait. Sit at my right hand and everything is going to be taken care of. I will establish the kingdom for you. You be faithful. And these people, they were just flabbergasted. They were, they were silenced. They're going, what do we say now? We only thought of him as the, the warrior, deliverer, king kind of guy. And now we miss this. We miss this whole God Father saying to the Messiah. So apparently, the Messiah is not only man, but also God. He is God. And the early church picked up this. Five times throughout the the New Testament, Psalm 110 is alluded to in Acts, in Hebrews. Uh, There's also allusions to it in 1 Corinthians, in in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and, uh, and 1 Peter. So everybody is getting this idea that Jesus is not just man. Jesus is God. He is Savior. He is God-made man. All together into one body. And because of that, there are just huge implications. But for some reason, this, this early, these scribes, the religious people of the day, they had their agenda. They wanted the Messiah to do certain things. They wanted Scripture to read a certain way so that it could meet their agenda. Sound like us sometimes? 
where we read Scripture a certain way, we'll, we'll text proof. In other words, we'll go to, oh, I like this here in Galatians, so I'm going to take this little section and it's going to make me feel all warm and fuzzy because, hey, it proved my point. And God is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. listen, start from Genesis, go to Revelation, look at the whole of Scripture. What am I doing in it? And God says, listen, what I say about myself and about how, I, how you are to live is not just secondhand stuff or just good moral stuff. This is holy, important stuff that will affect your entire life. It will affect how you, how you leave this place today and encounter the world. It will affect how you have husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé, fiancé. Is that what it is? Fiance, fiance, kind of relationships, how you raise your children, how you look at who God is and what God is doing in this world, how you approach that will affect all those relationships. It will reflect how we worship. When, when the band gets up here again, it's not just C, 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 G, G, G. You know, and we sing these songs and maybe cry a little bit. All of a sudden, if you really approach at who God is, all of a sudden, your heart is just warmed up so much. You are become passionate for what God has done for you that you cannot help but fully worship Him with your full voice, with your full heart, with your full life, with your full pocketbook, with your full uh, how you do your employment, how you do your schooling, how you do your whatever it is. All of a sudden you are so warmed up to who God is because you now understand the whole of Scripture, what God is up to, that you can't help to worship Him with everything. I can keep going. I need to move. So Mark reports about how the people reacted. Because apparently Jesus hit that perfect note where it was almost a, a note of discord in the hearts of the scribes. So apparently they're, these guys walk around in white, all of a sudden their shoulders kind of do. And what did the people do? How did they react? I love it. And the great throng heard him gladly. They go, yeah. One, the religious people are busted. Yeah. At the same time, there's hope for me. It's not just about religiosity and walking around and you know being pompous and being right or you're wrong. There's just hope. For how I can live. If He is who He says He is, if He is the Messiah, if He is the Christ, and He's God, and He's man, there's something tremendous about this. There is hope for me as a person. And they received that gladly. But Jesus wasn't done with the, with the crowd's happiness. What did He do? He kept on going after the religious people. He kept on going after us. He kept on nailing them one after the other after the other. He assaulted their, their, their self-proclaimed superiority with Scripture. And for me, as a pastor, 
this is scary stuff, especially how it ends uh, in verse 40. They will receive great condemnation. He's talking about the religious folks. Now, we believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. So it's not just talking about me. It's talking about Andy Ratchett. It's talking about Heather Solomon. It's talking about Casey Warren. It's talking about every one of us. If we are all believers, he's talking to all of us. But for me, as, as, a, as a pastor, as a shepherd of this flock, this is heavy stuff. He really nails them in a hard way. They never really fully faced the, the messianic implications of Scripture. Why? Because they were so obsessed. Their thoughts were just dominated with this political, nationalistic kind of human dream of who the Messiah was going to be. Their, their earthly dreams... Their agenda, their hopes, their wants, their desires, everything about them made them gloss over the obvious spiritual meaning of scriptures. Doesn't that sound like us sometimes? Our wants, our needs, our desires, our agenda, my way of seeing things makes me gloss over the spiritual implications of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And it's a danger that we all face. Not just me. We all face this. We all have biases of how we read into Scripture. We all have biases of how, how we, well, what this means obviously is this. It's obviously a cultural thing. It's obviously this. Oh, that's antiquated. Or, oh, that's, this is stuff we've got to take seriously. Not this, but this. And so we, what do we do? We take our agendas and we, we gloss over things that God, by His Holy Spirit, is saying, this is important. Don't mix this. You miss this, you miss out on the full life in the kingdom of God. Denominations are affected by this. Churches are affected by this. Christians are affected by this. And therefore, the world is affected by this. When we don't take Scripture, the full depth, length, breadth of Scripture, and we don't read it with eyes that we need to be true spiritual eyes, we are affected. Mokina is affected. New Lenox, wherever you live, is affected. When your agenda, when your preferences read Scripture, we miss Christ. When your agenda, your preferences, read Scripture, we miss Christ. He nails him. Beware of these scribes. Beware of these people who walk around in their long robes. You know, they're attention getters. They were... They were the power dressers with power ties. They probably had a show on TBN, you know, with the great big gold throne back there. Great big, big Bible. Hallelujah. And, and walking around in these long robes and greeting people in the marketplaces. 
How you doing? They probably didn't have to even be greeted because people greeted them. Oh, Rabbi. Oh, Christian. Look at him. Holy guy. And there's a certain amount. I like that. Feels good to be recognized, to be known by my title and my holiness, my righteousness, how I'm set aside from the rest of you. And Jesus says, be aware of those people. Danger. Stay away from them. They're nothing but trouble. And he goes around uh, saying they've got to have the best seats in the synagogues. They've got to have the places of honor at these feasts. Watch out for these folks. Power hungry. Who devour widows' homes. That sounds odd. But basically Jesus is saying, listen, they, they make these scribes make a living off of the people that they minister to. And look at how they're using the resources. Even it's abusive of how these and we're going to get to this in the next section about the widow's offering next week. How she gave so much more than everybody because she gave out of her nothing and they gave, you know, out of their, their wealth. And she says, listen. They are robbing the widows, the poorest of the poor, jerks. And they even make these these great, lofty, grand prayers. And Jesus is going, you know, that's really not what prayer is about. Saying the, our Father who art in heaven. Who says art anymore? Except the artists. You know, hallowed be thy name. You know, it's. Saying all the right exact words, and Jesus going, no, you're you're missing it. They're, don't make these huge eloquent speeches. Pray from the heart. Recognize that you need to repent from your sin. So he just nails nails their greed. He nails their their way of living life. Warren Wearsby, throw this one up for me, Andy. Warren Wearsby said this. Towards the end, you'll find it. For 19 centuries, the church has been telling the world to admit its sins, repent, and believe the gospel. Sound true? We're the finger pointers, aren't we? Today, in the twilight of the 20th century, the world is telling the church to face up to her sins, repent, and start being true, being the true church of that gospel. Ouch. You know, think about that. The world is now saying, seriously, that's your Bible? You, you believe this? But yet you are the very thing that you condemn. You are. You're telling me to repent? You repent. You go. You recognize your own sin. Repent. Be the church of that gospel. Be the people that that love who Jesus is, the Christ, the Messiah. Repent from your ways, your agenda. Follow truly after Christ who died for your sins. 
paid the great price that you could never pay with His own blood. You follow that Christ and live the new life that He's been given you. So Jesus' judgment was especially pronounced to those who are phony, who are false, who are proud, who are profit, have a profit-making lifestyle, who skew the gospel. Jesus' words are for those of us, which if we're honest with ourselves, it's all of us, who skew the good news of Jesus Christ. And he, he says at the very end, they will receive great, greater condemnation. It's almost like, listen, I've given you a precious gift. What are you going to do with this gift? You abuse it. Listen, there's greater condemnation for you than almost for those outside of the kingdom. You, you've squandered a beautiful gift. Shame on you. Even James, James 3 says, uh, be careful for those of you who become teachers. Be careful. Because you are going to be judged more harshly than the rest. Be careful. Uh, that's a huge, huge admonition for me as a, as a pastor as I pour over this, as I wrestle through it. I spend my 15 to 20 some hours wrestling through how do I how do I how do I share this? I've got to be careful because what I share could be my condemnation. Those who are going to be elders or deacons within this church, leaders within this church, be careful. Those of you who want to be a teacher, because you know what? There's great pressure of getting it if you will, right. Being true to the gospel. Where we've got to be careful not to allow our agenda, our wants, our needs, our desires to interpret Scripture. God is saying, be true to the gospel first. Be true to my kingdom. So a, a, a study of a text like this forces us to ask two major questions. Here's the first one. Throw it up for me, Andy. And this is for the scribes and for us today. What place does God's Word have in our lives? What place does God's Word have in our lives? And be honest. For most of us, it's important. Right? But when's the last time we have just dove into it, where we wept over Scripture because we found ourselves there? When's the last time where we are moved from a place of complacency to a place of action and compassion and mercy? Do we know Scripture? Not just those favorite verses, but do we know Scripture? What is the story of Genesis to Revelation? What is it that God is doing what is God up to in the world? And where do I find myself in that story? What is God doing? And do I believe that all of Scripture, not just the nice, comfortable things, all of Scripture is God-breathed and therefore 
useful for teaching, rebuking, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be mature. Do I believe that all of Scripture is God's Word? And therefore, what are my implications for that understanding? So what place does God's Word have in our lives? And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I, I, I'm glad she's out. I suck as being a husband. What place does God's Word have in our marriage? Well, we, we have family meetings about children's ministry and about what's going on at Missio Day. I guess it's kind of a side kind of thing, and it kind of fits in there kind of every once in a while we pray. So what, what place, how, how do we sit down in our, in our family and just say, you know what, if God's word is what it is, it, these are God's inspired words. And these are important words for our lives and, and our marriage, for our children. I need to make a priority. Friday I put out there, hey husbands, what, what do you do for uh, devotions uh, for your, your wife, for your kids? Nobody knows. They're scared to death to answer that question. And that wasn't just the Facebook world. That was the Twitter world, too. And those of you are going, what? Let's go with it. Research, Twitter, Google. What place does God's word have in your marriage, in your life? Any? The second question. The question that we have got to ask is this. Why do we serve God? Why do we serve Him? Apparently, these scribes loved serving God because it gave them prominence. It gave them a position, a place, notoriety. And I'll be honest, there's some times where I like that. My wife calls me the mayor of Mokina, even though I've been out of uh, teaching in Mokina for seven-ish years. I'll, I'll walk through Mokina. Hey! Hey, what are you doing now? You're a pastor, aren't you? It's like, yeah. Check out my white flowing robe and my little, you know, oh, Mr. Broom has entered the building. You know, there's something like that. It's just like, yeah, I love it. But why? Really, why do we serve God? Why are we challenging people to go serve in the children's ministry? Why would you serve God by serving snot-nosed little diaper-changing kids back there who seem to be hyped up on sugar because their parents gave them donuts before they came? They're just buzz, you know, they're just... Why would you ever do that? Why would we ever say, you know, we need people to serve as missional community leaders? Why would we ask you to serve God by doing that? Why would we ask you to serve God by taking down chairs, by going out and doing free coffee Tuesday, by going down to Rose? Why are you serving God? Is it a, to kind of, you know, um, when I was a kid, I, I joined what was called cadets. It's kind of this Christian Boy Scouts thing. Um, does it give you your merit badge? Does it give you that, dude, check this out. I got more than you, and I got a couple things over here. Punk. 
You know, we got this. We do we serve to gain rightness within a community? Do we do it so that we can have a, a better position with God? Why do we really serve? Why why do we believe serving God is important? Is it our recognition for what He has done for us? We understand the grace that has been poured out to us, that while we were yet sinners, we were jerks and we were we are just awful people. Christ died for us. And we understand and recognize the grace given to us, the love that has been given to us. So out of that that gratitude, that love, that grace, we serve the world because we want them to realize the grace that is available to them if their eyes and their hearts are open to Jesus Christ. That is why we need to serve. That is why we need to love our world. That's why we do free coffee Tuesday. That's why we go to Roseland. Because this overflow of love that we have for Christ, this gratitude we have for Jesus Christ, we go out. But here's the biggest question, the third question, the biggest one of all. What do you think about Christ? Who is he? Is he a mythical teacher? Moral man? Irrelevant? Who is this Christ? Jesus said that I am the Christ. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. who I am. So for you, who is the Christ? Is He the one that makes you feel guilty for not showing up on Sunday or to to serve? This week I came across this, this quote by John Henderson. And he said this, What rules your heart Rules your life. And your understanding of who the Christ is will determine whether or not He rules your heart and therefore rules your life. That's hard stuff. Even for me. Growing up in a Christian household, recognizing God's sovereign foundations at the age of 19, becoming a pastor at uh, 30-something. I've got to deal with this question on a daily basis, sometimes moment-by-moment basis. What's ruling my heart? Is it church work? Is it marriage? Is it kids? Or is it Christ? Is it my business, my place in culture, my place in whatever? Is that ruling my life because, or my heart? Because if it is, it's obviously, just ask, if you're married, just ask your spouse what rules your life, your heart. Because they'll tell you if they're honest. 
they're, husbands, I double dog dare you. Uh, the car, well, wait till after nap time. Maybe before nap time, because then you can have a, a breakup time for nap time, and then you can come back together and talk about it. Ask your, ask your wife, husband, what really, as you look at my life, what rules my heart? Because your wife is a great observer of your life. I don't think I dare ask Laura. That's a scary question. So as we come to communion, which is just a, a beautiful picture of God's grace, we too, I, I, I kind of put, put on the guilt, didn't I? And that's kind of what the law does. It says, listen, this is how far you, you are or you were. But let me show you grace. And that's what communion is. It's, it's a beautiful picture, a reminder, a weekly reminder for us at Missio Day of what Jesus Christ did and is doing in our lives. That He gave His perfect life, as we see in the bread, His whole perfect life, and gave it to us by breaking His body. He gave us His perfect blood and He shed it so that we could have new life. His very life source was shed out so that we could have life, so that the wrath of God is no longer on us, but is satisfied, so that we can have new life in Him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a... Come on. He's a what? Yeah. He's a new creation, a new creature. Creation For the old is gone and the new has come. And we celebrate this remembering the sins of this past week, the, the guilt that we have, and we can say, Christ, again today, here's my life. I give you my life, Lord, completely and fully again. And we celebrate this with heavy but happy hearts, remembering the price that has been paid for us. This is a meal that we ask that is reserved only for those who believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is who He says He is, Lord and Savior. We also ask that you examine your hearts, that you be honest with yourself, and quite honestly, maybe you need to be honest with each other. Examine your hearts. Confess. I'm going to be available in the back. Nate will be available in the back for a little bit. Katie, would you be available in the back? If you need somebody just to pray with, we, we can be your portable confession if that's what you need. If you need to just pray with somebody, we'd love to do that with you. But get right first. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this, this meal in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he poured it out and said, listen, this is a picture of my blood that will be poured out in a few short hours. Do this in remembrance of me. 
We celebrate by means of intinction. Would the servers please come forward? We celebrate by means of intinction, which basically means you'll be offered the bread first. The body of Christ broken for you. And then the cup offered to you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. And your rightful response is saying, Amen. So come, when you are ready, for all things are ready.